Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Uh, Back in 2020, I wanted to do an episode on the South Sea bubble because that was its 300th anniversary. And for various reasons, that just did not happen. Uh, But I saw a random joke on Twitter recently that referenced both the South Sea Bubble and Tulip Mania, and I thought, hey, let's go take another look at that. (laughs) One of the the reasons I did not do a South Sea Bubble episode back in 2020 is that at, at that time, a lot of the resources that I found were written by economists and economic historians They were really, really in the weeds on their financial jargon, and some of them read like there weren't people involved in this. It was just market forces. It was all money and concepts. (laughs) Yeah, it's like that's not the approach that we take on our show. Uh, So a big upside of my procrastination is that a ton of new stuff came out in late 2019 and then all through 2020, that was geared more toward a general audience and not toward other economists and then was written from a historical perspective that's more like the the approach of our show. So back to the top of the list it went. The South Sea bubble happened alongside a similar bubble in France that was known as the Mississippi bubble. And in some ways, these two financial bubbles were interconnected. I thought about making this episode cover both of them But it turns out that they're similar enough in big chunks of it that there were parts that were almost repeated, but not exactly, but then also different enough that there was a key passage that involved an unwieldy explanation two different times. So uh, I, I pitched that idea. We will talk a little about the Mississippi bubble, but the South Sea bubble is the primary focus here. In the early 18th century, Britain needed money. The Nine Years' War, also known as the War of the Grand Alliance, had stretched from 1689 to 1697, and then the War of the Spanish Succession started in 1701. As a result, Britain was deeply in debt, with much of that debt involving Navy contractors. It had reached a point where some of them were refusing to provide service. Beyond its actual involvement in the war, the Royal Navy was also protecting British ships from pirates, enemy warships, and enemy trading ships, so Britain really could not afford to jeopardize it. This was happening alongside some changes in the world of British finance. British periodicals had started printing lists of stock prices around 1679, Then in 1698, a man named John Casting started posting price lists for stocks and commodities and other investments at Jonathan's Coffee House, which was founded by Jonathan Miles. Coffee houses in London's financial district were where stockbrokers worked a lot of the time, and Jonathan's Coffee House was one of the busiest for this purpose. Casting's price list became a newspaper that was called Course of the Exchange, This was really the first time that all of these prices were brought together in one place and published in a way that was easily and publicly accessible. So sometimes it's described as the beginning of the London Stock Exchange, although that was not formally founded until much later. This may be apocryphal, but stockbrokers were allegedly working out of coffee houses because their behavior was so disruptive that they were banned from the Royal Exchange. 
But coffee houses had also become a hub for socializing and information sharing. Most of them subscribed to multiple newspapers and periodicals, and the coffee house is where people would go to read them. So just as coffee houses made these publications more accessible to more people, the stockbrokers working from them did the same for investing. As that was happening, the Bank of England was also established in 1694. It acted as the government's banker, including loaning the government money to fund its wartime efforts. This led to the whole idea of national debt in Britain. But at this point, the British nation as a whole had no overall budget. Loans and expenditures uh, were approved as they came up. Nobody had a clear sense of even how much money the British government owed and who they owed it to. Eventually, Robert Harley, Chancellor of the Exchequer, was tasked with sorting through all of this. As Harley was working on that, Britain still needed to find enough money to cover the military payroll. Harley worked with John Blunt, secretary of the Sword Blade Company, to raise funds through the National Lottery. The Sword Blade Company, sometimes called the Hollow Sword Blade Company, was exactly what it sounds like. They made French-style swords that had become popular in Britain. But the company had also gotten into banking, and it had raised funds to buy lands by exchanging shares in the company for what were basically unsecured government bonds. The company had also bought up more of these same bonds ahead of time, expecting them to increase in value when people heard about the share swap, which they did. Harley was impressed with all of this, and that was what led him to look to Blunt for help with the National Lottery. Blunt was in charge of marketing and promotion. All of this really boosted the lottery's performance. It had existed before this, but not in a way that was making a lot of money. This time, it raised 1.5 million pounds, and then other lotteries followed. This was really a stopgap, though. It let the government cover some of its most immediate debts, but the money that was raised with this lottery was just a fraction of what the government owed. In 1711, the South Sea Company, or the Governoring Company of the Merchants of Great Britain, trading to the South Seas in other parts of America, and for the encouragement of the fishery, was established to try to manage this debt. It was to be a counterpart to the British East India Company. There was also a political element to this. The British East India Company was controlled by Whigs, but the plan was for the South Sea Company to be under Tory control. So this newly established company would, at least in theory, adjust the financial balance of power between the two parties. John Blunt was tapped as the company's first chief executive, with Robert Harley as governor. The South Sea Company was a public-private partnership, and it had multiple overlapping purposes. It was a business. It would have a monopoly on trade with Spain's colonies in the Caribbean and South America. Britain also hoped this trading enterprise would allow it to influence the Spanish colonies. In addition to all of this, the South Sea Company would also provide a way for the government to restructure and consolidate some of its debt. The heart of this debt consolidation was a debt-for-equity swap. The South Sea Company would buy a significant portion of the nation's debt. Investors would then be encouraged to swap any government debts they had for shares in the South Sea Company. The government would pay 6% interest on the debt that the South Sea Company held, and the South Sea Company would distribute that interest to investors as a dividend. So this would provide a solid, predictable return on people's investments. 
This wasn't just about that 6% return, though. As the price of shares in the company went up, the number of shares that were required to cover the government's debt would go down. But the total number of shares stayed the same. So once the government's debts were all accounted for, any surplus shares could be sold off at market value. As the price went up, people who sold their shares had the potential to make a profit that would be well above that 6%. And if Britain's trade with the Spanish colonies was successful, the company would become more profitable, and a portion of those profits would be passed along to investors as well. Of course, there was a giant hitch to that part of it when the company was first established, which was that Britain and Spain were at war. They were not trading with one another. Does seem like kind of a weird thing to make your plan. <laughs> Whoops. <laughs> in addition to the potential for turning a profit, swapping debt for equity in the South Sea Company had some other potential benefits for investors. Holding government debt directly had become notoriously difficult. In many cases, debt holders were seriously limited in how or whether they could transfer the debt they were holding to somebody else or otherwise get rid of it. There was a lot of red tape involved. Sometimes it was essentially impossible. And because of the government's ongoing problems with finances, its payments were often late or even non-existent. So you could basically be in a situation where you had loaned money to the British government, but the government wasn't paying you on time or at all, and you just had no way to untangle yourself from this situation. The South Sea Company plan got around all of that by encouraging people who were holding all kinds of debts with all kinds of terms attached to swap them for shares in the company. From there, it would be up to the company to deal with the government and its repayments, or lack thereof, and the company would pay a reliable, predictable annuity out to those investors who had swapped their debt for shares. At first, this seemed to work. About 9.5 million pounds of government debt was consolidated through the South Sea Company shares in about six months. But eventually, things took a turn, which we will get to after a sponsor break. As we mentioned before the break, when the South Sea Company was first established, Britain and Spain were at war, which made it kind of weird for... Britain to be pinning a huge chunk of debt restructuring on a company that was supposed to trade with Spanish colonies. But in 1713, so just a couple of years later, Britain's part in the War of the Spanish Succession ended with the Treaty of Utrecht, which was signed by Queen Anne of England and King Philip V of Spain. Part of the Treaty of Utrecht was the Asiento, or contract, which granted Britain a monopoly on the transport of enslaved Africans to Spanish territory in the Americas. Under the Asiento, Britain would provide 4,800 enslaved people to Spain's colonies per year. Britain assigned this right to the South Sea Company. The treaty also specified that Britain could send one trading ship of general cargo per year to the Portobello Trade Fair in Panama. Although these trading rights weren't nearly as broad as people hoped, Europe's colonies in the Americas relied so heavily on enslaved labor that investors thought the Asiento made this a sure thing. So yeah, the South Sea Company was going to work with the Royal African Company. The Royal African Company was who would purchase the enslaved people in Africa, and then the South Sea Company would be who transported those people across the Atlantic Ocean and then sold them in Spanish colonies. 
Uh, We should note that in the early 18th century, Britain had a small but established population of free Black people, particularly in London. There were also enslaved people in Britain at this time, and there were absolutely people in Britain who objected to slavery on moral grounds. But all of this was happening decades before an abolitionist movement coalesced in Britain. So slavery and industries that relied on slavery were deeply entrenched in the British economy. And the fact that so many people were so eager to invest in what was, at its heart, a slave trading venture, that's really reflective of societal attitudes about the institution at the time. In 1714, Queen Anne died and King George I came to the throne. As we said earlier, the South Sea Company had originally been envisioned as an enterprise controlled by Tories. But at this point, many Tories were Jacobites. They supported James Francis Edward Stuart, son of James II and VII, as heir to the throne rather than George I. We have talked about all of this in prior episodes, including the one on the Jacobite Rising of 1745. So King George's administration was made up mostly of Whigs. Robert Harley was arrested, accused of being a Jacobite, and imprisoned for two years. John Blunt also replaced the South Sea Company's Tory officers with Whigs, and George's son, the future King George II, was temporarily installed as the company's governor. George I took over the South Sea Company himself in 1718. Although the debt for equity swap with the South Sea Company had allowed Britain to restructure a portion of its debt, didn't really have a part of the plan that was about keeping the nation from incurring more debt. By the end of 1719, the British national debt was about 50 million pounds. About 3.4 million pounds of that was owed to the Bank of England, roughly the same amount to the British East India Company, Britain owed 12 million pounds to the South Sea Company, and the rest was owed to the public. This was, obviously, a lot of debt. And at about the same time, France was reckoning with its own debt as Scottish economist John Law tried to totally transform the French economy. He founded a bank in France in 1716, which became a lender to the French government and eventually merged with other banks to form the Banque Générale. The Banque Générale held a huge chunk of government debt and was later nationalized and renamed the Banque Royale. In 1717, Law established the Compagnie d'Occident, or the Mississippi Company, to control French trading rights in the Mississippi River Valley. He sold shares in the company as subscriptions. In 1719, he also took control of both the French East India Company and the China Company, and he consolidated all of this into the Compagnie des Indies, or the Compagnie. This put him in control of a company that had a monopoly on virtually all French trade outside of Europe. From there, he amassed even more financial power, The Compagnie took over tax administration in France, and Law was later named Controller General and Superintendent General of Finance. Then, in 1719 and early 1720, the Compagnie's share prices skyrocketed, from about 500 livres per share to 9,000. After the price hit 9,000 livres, the Banque Royale pegged it there to keep it from increasing any further. Investors started trying to exchange their shares for gold, and there was not enough gold in all of France to cover the demand. 
Inflation was rampant as the Banque Royale started trying to get people to take their payouts in paper notes, including issuing a 9,000 livre note. John Law laid out a plan to systematically reduce the share price from 9,000 livre to 5,000 livre to try to deflate the currency somewhat without losing too much share value in the company. But as the share price started to drop, his efforts were not enough to keep it from just plummeting. By the end of 1720, it had fallen all the way back to about 500 livre, which is where it had been in the spring of 1719. All of this came to be known as the Mississippi Bubble. The Banque Royale collapsed in its wake, and John Law had to flee France after the bubble burst. As all of this was happening, the South Sea Company share swaps were also kicking into high gear, with some of the demand coming from investors who had gotten out of the French market. First, the South Sea Company proposed another round of debt-for-equity swaps, and also loaned the British government roughly half a million pounds. Then, Parliament passed an Act for Making Forth New Exchequer Bills. Under this act, the South Sea Company loaned the government roughly 5.7 million pounds. It also acquired roughly 31.5 million pounds in government debt, which it was going to convert into shares. The promised returns on this were huge. The government was going to be paying 5% interest on the debt that was converted into shares. But the company was promising to pay investors a 30% dividend by the end of 1720. And then that was supposed to jump to 50% for the 10 years after that. That probably sounds like too good to be true. (laughs) Spoiler. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. The company had promoted its earlier swaps through advertisements and pamphlets and propaganda, including some written by people like Daniel Defoe and Jonathan Swift. In 1719 and 1720, it ramped up these efforts as well. It also published lists of prominent investors, including the king and various members of parliament. This was all to reinforce the idea that this was a totally reliable investment that had the support of some of the nation's most powerful people. All of this fed into an investing frenzy. The South Sea Company started offering subscription plans so that investors could buy shares even if they didn't have all the money up front. There were multiple waves of these subscription plans, and they allowed investors to pay for their shares in installments. The company also loaned money to prospective investors so that they could buy stock with it, and they loaned current investors money based on the value of the stock they already had so they could buy more stock. (sighs) Hello, unsustainable. As interest in investment surged, share prices spiked in the Bank of England and the East India Company, but not nearly as much as in the South Sea Company. The number of companies to invest in surged as new joint stock companies were established all over the place. One for making muslin, one for importing lace from Flanders, one for insuring horses, one for making soap, on and on and on. Some of these new companies were obvious scams, and in 1720, Parliament passed the Bubble Act, which banned all joint stock companies that did not have a royal charter. Those new companies were outlawed, and many of their former investors turned to South Sea Company stock. 
The price for shares of the South Sea Company rose from about 100 pounds per share in 1719 to 300 pounds in April in 1920, 500 pounds in June, all the way to more than 1,000 pounds per share in August. The company thought this price was just going to keep going up, especially once it had covered all the required government debt and could just sell the remaining shares at market rate at a profit without having to offset government debt with it. So the company started paying out more money to investors who wanted to cash out than it was taking in. I was expecting those future gains to make up the shortfall that it was creating. But instead, the price plummeted precipitously, dropping from about 1,000 pounds in August of 1722 a hundred pounds in September. Like the Mississippi bubble, this had just basically dropped back to its pre-bubble price. A more limited bubble was also playing out in the Dutch Republic as all of this was going on. The price for shares in the Dutch East India Company and the Dutch West India Company both rose along with the Mississippi and South Sea shares. Roughly 40 small joint stock companies were established in the Dutch Republic, which went through the same pattern. This became known as the Dutch Windhandel of 1720, and that, combined with the Mississippi and South Sea bubbles, is sometimes described as the first international stock market collapse. This sense of the word bubble existed before this point. Its first use in writing was in Edward Ward's Labor in Vain, or What Signifies Little or Nothing, in 1700. But writing about these three intersecting financial collapses popularized the word's use. We will get into the aftermath of all of this after a quick sponsor break. When the price of shares in the South Sea Company dropped precipitously in September of 1720, people who had bought shares when the price was low saw all of their gains evaporate seemingly overnight. They were understandably outraged, but a whole lot more people lost actual money, not just unrealized gains (laughs) that reverted to the previous amount. Some of these were wealthy people who had previously held government debt and they had swapped that debt for shares, but others were just ordinary folks who had gone to a coffee shop and had bought shares of the company with their savings. People who had bought subscriptions when the price was still high also still had payments due on those subscriptions, but now these payments were for more than the stock was worth. People who had taken out loans to buy stock defaulted on them and in some cases had to declare bankruptcy. Britain reportedly saw an increase in suicides in the wake of this financial collapse. Meanwhile, people who had bought early and sold before the crash, they mostly just kept quiet about it. Yeah, you don't, you don't hear a lot about the people, except for the officers of the company who were accused of wrongdoing, you really don't hear a lot of the people who sold at the right time after having bought at the right time. Uh, There were also some people who sold their shares before the price crashed, but then wound up buying more shares. One of those was Sir Isaac Newton, and he is often used as an illustration for how financially devastating this was. After some initial skepticism about this whole setup, Newton had invested... He had made about a 100% return on his initial investment, and then he had gotten out of it. 
But then he purchased more shares near the peak of the bubble. According to his family lore, he lost about 20,000 pounds when the price collapsed. But more modern analysis of his financial records suggests that it was closer to 10,000 pounds. This is still a lot of money. Even if he did lose more than that, which would be a lot more money, he seems to have recovered. He was rich when he died in 1727 with an estate that was valued at about 30,000 pounds. One of the reasons that Newton became sort of the poster child for the South Sea bubble is just that he was Isaac Newton. He was a mathematician. He was the warden and later the master of the royal mint. If Isaac Newton, of all people, could fall victim to this crash, then surely no one could have foreseen it. Newton is still widely quoted as saying, I can calculate the motions of the heavenly bodies, but not the madness of people, when he described the rapid rise of the stock price and the bubble's ultimate burst. But that quote may very well be apocryphal. And the idea that nobody could possibly have foreseen this is just inaccurate. In early 1720, multiple publications warned that this escalating share price was just not sustainable. On March 31st of 1720, Member of Parliament Archibald Hutchison wrote, quote, If the truth be, as I verily believe it is, that there is no real foundation for the present, much less the further expected high price of South Sea stock, and that the frenzy which now reigns can be of no long continuance in so cool a climate, and amongst a people hitherto so justly famed for wisdom and prudence, I say, if this be the case, is it not the duty of a British Senate to take all necessary precautions to prevent the ruin of many thousands of families, and that our weekly bills of mortality may not be filled with large numbers of unhappy people who have hanged, drowned, or shot themselves, and surely no honest, good-natured man can enjoy with comfort an estate, how immense soever, raised on such a foundation as this. Hutchinson printed up and distributed a lot of material about this, trying to warn people at his own expense. Economists and economic historians have made all kinds of arguments about what exactly caused the South Sea bubble to inflate and burst, factoring in market forces, policies, and individual and collective decisions. But the two prevailing ideas in the 18th century were that it had been a deliberate fraud, or that more emotional factors were at work, like greed, or as Newton allegedly said, madness. In the face of public outrage about alleged fraud, Robert Walpole was named Chancellor of the Exchequer and was tasked with sorting all of this out. Walpole again restructured the national debt, including establishing a sinking fund that the nation paid into to help stabilize the economy. Multiple committees investigated and issued reports on the bubble's rise and collapse in 1721. One big source of criticism was that a lot of officials who had promoted this stock or worked on these debt swaps had taken bribes to do so, although bribery was really routine at this point. Directors of the board of the South Sea Company were arrested and faced corruption trials. The postmaster general was implicated. Former Chancellor of the Exchequer John A. Salby, who had heavily promoted South Sea Company stock and had sold his own shares at the peak, was expelled from the House of Lords and imprisoned. 
In January of 1721, Parliament banned the former directors of the company from leaving England and also prohibited them from serving as officers in the South Sea Company, the East India Company, or the Bank of England. In August of 1721, Parliament passed an act for making several provisions to restore the public credit which suffers by the frauds and mismanagements of the late directors of the South Sea Company and others. This was, in part, a relief act that canceled some of the debts of people who had borrowed money to buy South Sea stock, as well as canceling subscriptions for stock purchases that still had outstanding payments. It also seized the money that the company's directors had earned when the share price increased, and it redistributed that money among people who had suffered big losses. Some of the company officers' estates were also seized and sold, with most of that money covering the South Sea Company's losses. At the same time, Walpole's response was widely perceived as scapegoating some of the people while shielding others from punishment. As a result, he was nicknamed Screenmaster General. In spite of that, he effectively became Britain's first prime minister before that term was even coined. A lot of people also wrote about how greed had been at the root of all of this. One of those was Daniel Defoe, who published this in The Complete English Tradesman. Quote, Avarice is the ruin of many people besides tradesmen, and I might give the late South Sea calamity for an example, in which the longest heads were most overreached, and not so much by the wit or cunning of those they had to deal with as by the secret promptings of their own avarice, wherein they abundantly verified an old proverbial speech or saying, all covet, all lose." So it was there indeed, and the cunningest, wisest, sharpest men lost the most money. Defoe also wrote such works as The Villainy of Stock Jobbers Detected. Jobber was the name sometimes used for stockbrokers and sometimes for go-betweens who connected stockbrokers to ordinary British investors. Other people placed the blame on naive or inexperienced investors, The government's encouragement of people to buy South Sea Company stock had combined with the use of coffee houses as a stock trading location to make investing possible for people who had just never done it before. This included people with more modest incomes, and it included women. About 20% of the general public investors in the South Sea Company were women. Consequently, there was a lot of sexist commentary about women's involvement in the market after the bubble burst. Propaganda, artwork, satirical writing, and even playing cards also targeted immigrants, Jews, and non-conforming Protestants as people who should never have been involved in the market in the first place. Therefore, they were to blame. Past podcast subject William Hogarth published an engraving called The South Sea Scheme in 1721. So this would have been one of his earlier works. The inscription at the bottom alludes to this idea that this mixing of women and immigrants and non-conforming Christians was involved in the collapse. Quote, Here all religions flock together, like tame and wild fowl of a feather, leaving their strife religious bustle, kneel down to play at pitch and hustle. Thus, when the shepherds are at play, their flocks must surely go astray. The woeful cause it in these times, honor and honesty are crimes, that publicly are punished by self-interest and villainy. So much for money's magic power. Guess at the rest you find out more. 
By the mid-19th century, people were looking at this in terms of mass psychology. For example, in 1841, Scottish journalist Claude McKay published Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds. He described the South Sea Bubble this way, quote, During the progress of this famous bubble, England presented a singular spectacle. The public mind was in a state of unwholesome fermentation. Men were no longer satisfied with the slow but sure profits of cautious industry. The hope of boundless wealth for the morrow made them heedless and extravagant for today. A luxury till then unheard of was introduced, bringing in its train a corresponding laxity of morals, the overbearing insolence of ignorant men who had arisen to sudden wealth by successful gambling made men of true gentility of mind and manners blush that gold should have the power to raise the unworthy in the scale of society. Although the immediate effects of the South Sea Bubble's collapse were huge, it does not appear to have caused a long-term recession or depression in Britain. The South Sea Company sold most of its rights to the Spanish government in 1750. For a while, the company moved into whaling, but eventually it mostly retained only its purpose for managing governmental debt. It existed as a company until 1853. That was a South Sea bubble, something that uh, it's weird to consider still. I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the episode. Uh, weird is probably not the right word. That all of this was essentially tied up in a slave trading company. Uh, there are a lot of articles that just seem to not say that part. <laughs> uh, for a while, there was a perception that this whole thing was basically a giant uh, scheme and that there was no actual work being done by the South Sea Company, but that is just not true. It was definitely actively involved in the transatlantic slave trade and had a monopoly on Britain's trade with the Spanish colonies. And like that's that was not something that existed only on paper. That is something that existed for real. Uh, and so, of course, the the lives of the people who were captured and transported across the Atlantic and enslaved are underpinning all of this. Right. On that peppy note, um, do you have listener mail as well? I do. I do. I have a listener mail from Emily. Emily says, hi, Holly and Tracy. Longtime listener, first time writer. Though I'll admit I'm a bit behind on episodes. I knew how I had to write after listening to the October 2021 edition of Unearthed. In part one, you covered a story about Jeremy, the pigeon who saved World War I's lost battalion. My great-grandfather was one of the 194 men who survived the World War I Lost Battalion, so Cherami and the battalion story hold a very important place in my family's history. In the episode, you wondered whether you'd previously covered this Lost Battalion on the show. I can confirm that you have not, as I've listened for it in every episode of the archive. You did cover a World War II Lost Battalion, and I experienced emotional whiplash when that episode came out, thinking you'd finally done an episode on, quote, my Lost Battalion. I hold out hope that one day you'll do a full episode on this Lost Battalion. My family was incredibly fortunate to honor the legacy of the Lost Battalion by visiting the site of the battle on the 100th anniversary in 2018. It was surreal to stand in the ruins of the bunker, photos attached, where my great-grandfather, a second lieutenant, was with Major Whittlesey when he received the orders that launched the offensive. 
We've also visited Cherami while he is on display at the Smithsonian, although he's looking a little worse for wear. A hundred years later, photo attached. Ironically, I did not miss the lost battalion in history class. My world history teacher showed us a 2001 A&E film about the battle. Shout out to Mr. DeBruin. And these days, my sister, a high school history teacher, is also ensuring students don't miss the lost battalion in history class. Thank you for all the hours of education and entertainment, attaching favorite photos of our beloved miniature Dotson Daisy in the hope it brings you a moment of joy. Best Emily. Thank you so much for all these pictures, Emily. Uh, I really appreciated seeing the ones of the battle site and Sheremy, and of course, seeing a sleeping Dotson. Daisy is so cute. I want to like, I I don't know, I want to kiss Daisy's face real bad. Yeah. (laughs) Um, So thank you so much for sending that email and those pictures. If you would like to send us an email about this or any other podcast, we're at historypodcast at iheartradio.com. We're all over social media at Missed in History. That's where you'll find our Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, and Instagram. And you can subscribe to our show on the iHeartRadio app and wherever else you like to hit your podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. <laughs> 